The Big Cycle of the United States and the Dollar, Part 2. The New World Order from 1945 until now. As is typical after wars, World War II's winning powers, the most importantly the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union, then called the Big Three, led meetings to create the New World Order, which included carrying up the world into geographic areas of control and establishing new money and credit systems. While France, China, and a couple of other countries were technically aligned with these winning countries, they were lesser players, and with Germany, Japan, and Italy defeated and broken by the war, they were neither leading nor independent powers. They were subordinate to the two and aligned with U.S. with the U.S. Britain, which was essentially bankrupt, was also aligned with the U.S. The Soviet Union was leading rival power that was not aligned with the U.S., so it formed its own camp with its own allies. While there was relatively good cooperation between the two camps immediately after the war, it didn't take long for the world to become divided between the U.S.-led capitalist democratic camp and the Soviet-controlled communist autocratic camp, each with its own monetary economic systems. There, there, though there were a small number of less significant countries that were non-aligned. The chart below shows the aggregate powers indices of the U.S., the U.K., Russia, and China since the end of the war, which conveys the big picture. And here we have the United States riding high at the end of the war, and then with a slight decline to about 0.8 of the level relevance to other empires. And we see China's rising while the United States and Russia are sort of at the base, or the United Kingdom and Russia are at the lower end, we're around the 0.4 mark. We now delve into, the, into this story more closely. The post-war geopolitical and military system. The three major powers and others got together in different conferences. The Yalta Conference, the Potsdam Conference, and the Bretton Woods Conference were the most notable, and carved up the world with U.S.-controlled capitalist democratic countries on one side and Soviet-controlled communist autocratic countries on the other, with each bloc having its own monetary systems. Germany was split into pieces with the United States, Great Britain, and France having control of West Germany and Russia controlling East Germany. Japan was under U.S. control and China returned to the state of civil war between communists and capitalists. Unlike after World War I, when the United States chose to be relatively isolated, after World War II, the United States took the primary leadership role in the world as it had most of the economic, geopolitical, and military power. Geographically, the U.S.-led Western world extended east from the U.S. through Western Europe and into Germany, which was split into West Germany, which was controlled by the U.S. and its allies, and, the, and East Germany along a line division that became known as the Iron Curtain. East of that line, going through Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union to Korea, was Soviet-controlled. Korea, like Germany, was split with the Soviets controlling the North and the Americans controlling the South. China, which had essentially left weak in the Civil War, got back Shanghai and other previously held areas within the mainland, but was left without Hong Kong, though with the agreement of 1898 to get large portions of it back after 99 years, and Formosa, now Thailand, or Taiwan. China had an initially cooperative relationship with the Soviet Union that didn't last long. In the other direction, going to the West, of the U.S. into the Pacific, the U.S. controlled areas extended all the way to the southern half of Korea. 
the British Empire's area of control or, or influence remained largely the same right at the end of the war, except for some minor additions. As for geopolitical institutions, the United Nations was created in 1945, and it was located in the United States, in New York, reflecting the U.S. being the leading world power. Ideologically, the United States-led world was capitalist and democratic, while the Soviet-led world was communist and autocratic. The U.S.-led monetary system for the U.S.-led countries linked the dollar to gold, and most other countries' currencies were tied to the dollar. This system was followed by over 40 countries. Because the U.S. had around two-thirds of the world's gold, and because the U.S. was much more powerful economically and militarily, than any other country. This monetary system has worked best and carried on until now. The Soviet Union and those countries that were brought into the Soviet Union's bloc were much less rich and were built on much weaker foundations. The split was clear from the outset. President Truman, Truman summarized it outlining what is now referred to as the Truman Doctrine in March of 1947 speech. And inside quotes, at the present moment in the world history, nearly every nation must choose between alternative ways of living. The choice is too often not a free one. One way of life is based upon the will of the majority and the distinguished, distinguished by free institution, representative government, free elections, guarantees of individual liberty, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from political oppression. The second way of life is based upon the will of a minority forcibly imposed upon the majority. It re relies upon terror and oppression, a controlled press and radio, fixed elections, and the suppression of personal freedoms. I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. End quote. Governance between countries is very different from governments within countries. That is because within countries there are laws and standards of behavior that govern, whereas between countries raw power matters most, and laws, rules, and even mutually agreed treaties and organizations for arbitration such as the League of Nations or the United Nations and the World Trade Organization don't matter much. Operating internationally is like operating in a jungle in which there is survival of the fittest and most anything goes. That is what makes having a strong military so important. Military alliances were built along the same ideological geopolitical lines in 1949. A military alliance of 12 countries, with more joining later, that were in the U.S. camp formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. And in 1954, the South Asian Treaty Organization was established among the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, France, New Zealand, and the Philippines the Philippines, Thailand, and Pakistan, to prevent the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. In 1955, a military alliance of seven countries that were in the Soviet camp formed the Warsaw Pact. As shown in the chart below, the Americans and Soviet invested massively in building up their nuclear weapons, and a number of other countries followed. These weapons were never used because of the deterrence of mutually assured destruction. Still, there was a couple of times it came close. Um, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Today, in varying amounts and degrees and of capabilities, 11 countries have nuclear weapons and are on the brink of having them. Having nuclear weapons obviously gives one a big negotiating chip in the world power game, so it's understandable why some countries would want to have them and other countries would not want other countries to have them. 
Of course, in addition to building nuclear cap capabilities, various new other weapons systems were created, and though there were no nuclear wars, there were a number of wars uh, to counter communism and other geopolitical advised ad adversaries most notably the korean war in 1950 the vietnam war in 1960s and the two gulf wars in 1990 and 2003 the war in afghanistan from 2001 until now these were costly in terms of money lives and public support for the united states were they worth it that's for others to decide for the soviet union which had much smaller and weaker economy than the u.s spending enough to complete compete with the u.s militarily and maintain its empire was bankrupting and so here they have a map of nuclear weapon stockpiles in which the united states sort of jumps up initially after 1945 and then it comes into parity with russia and then russia and the united states sort of lower um, the number of warheads down and it looks like we're looking at a hundred thousand at the peak we never quite reached 100,000 by an individual country, down to 10,000 where Russia and the United States just hover back, but now. Whereas China, India, um, Great Britain, and France all have um, a little bit more than 100 nuclear warheads. That's in a graph. Of course, military power consists of a lot more than nuclear weapons, and a lot has changed since the Cold War. Where do things stand now? Oh, while I'm no military expert, I get to speak to some who have led me to believe that while the United States remains the strongest military power overall, it is not dominant in all parts of the world in all ways, and military challenges to it are rising. I'm told that there is a significant chance that the U.S. would lose wars against China and Russia if in their geopolitical areas of strength, or at least would be unacceptably harmed and would also be unacceptably harmed by some second-tier powers. This is not the good old days early uh, after the beginning of the post-1945 world order in which the U.S. was clearly the sole dominant military power. They could not only be threatened by others. They could not be threatened by others. While there are a number of high-risk scenarios, the most worrying one is forceful move by China to bring Taiwan under its control. What would the next military conflict look like? It seems clear that in the new war technologies would be deployed, so the war would be of the future will be very different from the last wars in the same ways more recent wars were fought with different technologies than the ones before them. Classically, the country that wins wars outspends, outinvests, and outlasts the opposition. Because spending on military takes government money away from spending on social programs, and because military technologies go hand-in-hand -hand with private sector technology, the biggest risks for the leading powers is that they lose the economic and technology races over time. The, the post-war monetary and economic system. Monetary and transactions between countries were all still are very different from money and transactions within countries. That is because within countries, governments control get to control the key aspects of money and transactions, such as the way money is used, how much of it is there, what it costs, who handles it, and how. Whereas in transactions between countries, the key aspects of the money and transactions have to be mutually agreed upon. For example, within a country, the the government can mandate that only the paper money that it prints is acceptable, whereas between countries, only the money that those who are transacting agree is acceptable will be accepted. That is why gold and reserve currencies have been so important in transactions between countries. While people 
within countries typically exchange this paper with others in the country, ob oblivious to the fact that the money is not much valued outside of the country. Within countries, individuals were not allowed to own or transact in gold because governments wanted to be able to control the supply and value of people's money and distribution of people's wealth. People's abilities to own gold could threaten the system because gold is an alternative money that is not controlled by the government that people could use instead of the government's money. So, to simplify a bit, within countries, people or companies would use the government-controlled paper money, and when they wanted to buy something from another country, they would typically exchange their own paper currency for the seller's paper currency with the help of their central bank, and the central bank would settle up with the other central bank in gold. Or, if they were American, they would typically pay in dollars, and the seller would turn that money into the country's central bank for its local currency, and that central bank would turn its surplus of dollars in for gold. So gold would leave the United States Central Bank Reserve account and go into the other central bank accounts. As a result, a central bank's gold reserve savings would go down in a country spent more than it earned, and it would go up in a country where it earned more than it spent. As for the particular new post-war monetary and economic systems, there was one for the U.S.-led camp and one for the Soviet-led camp. Though there were also some non-aligned countries that had their own non-aligned currencies that were not widely accepted. Those countries in the U.S. camp, which consisted of 44 countries, gathered in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944 to make a monetary system that put the dollar and gold at the center of it. The Soviet Union created its own monetary system built around its currency, the ruble. It was a much less significant monetary system. The Bretton Woods Agreement put the dollar in the position of being the world's leading reserve currency. This was natural because the two world wars made the U.S. the richest and most powerful country by far. It earned this money via large exports, and by the end of World War II, it had amassed the greatest gold-slash-money savings ever. The savings accounted for around two-thirds of, of the world's government held gold and money, and was the equivalent to eight years of import purchases. Even after the war, it continued to earn a lot of money by continuing to export a lot. In other words, the U.S. was very rich. By comparison, other countries were broke, which made it difficult to buy what they needed from the U.S. and other countries. Besides not having any money, Europe and Japan had virtually nothing to sell after the war because their, ec their economies were destroyed. As a solution to the fight, the spread of communism, the U.S. offered massive aid packages to Western Europe and Japan, known as Marshall and Dodge plans, which were A, good for devastated nations, and B, good for the U.S. economically because these countries use the money to buy U.S. stuff. C, good for the U.S. geopolitical influence abroad. And D, good for reinforcing the dollar's position as the world's dominant reserve currency because they increased its usage. All leading central banks in history have followed vari variations on this process. Most recently, China's Belt and Road initi Initiative has offered similar advantages to China. As for monetary policy, from 1933 until 1951, the amount of money and cost of money, uh, for example, meaning the interest rates, and where that money and where that money went was controlled by the Federal Reserve to serve the greater objectives of the country rather than to let the free market allocate money and credit. More specifically, it printed a lot of money to buy debt, capped interest rates, and lenders could charge and capped 
interest rates that lenders could charge and controlled what money was allowed to go into so high inflation. So high inflation did not drive interest rates to unacceptable heights and there were no investment options more attractive than the debt the government wanted people to save in. Following a brief post-war recession that was due to the government's war spending decision declining, the U.S. entered a prolonged period of peace and prosperity because the new and mutually reinforcing big cycles transpired. Most importantly, a new debt cycle began with the new monetary system. Wealth and value gaps were reduced so the environment was one of greater unity in pursuit of peace and prosperity. And there was a dominant power that nobody wanted to fight. Also, stock prices were very cheap as a result. The U.S. economy and markets were very strong for many years to come. During the post-war adjustment period between mid-1945 and mid-1947, over 20 million people were released from the armed forces and re- related employment, so unemployment rate rose from 1.9 to just 3.9. At the same time, pent-up demand for savings, pent-up demand and savings to finance that demand had built up so so the removal of rationing laws which had limited people's ability to buy consumer goods fueled a consumer spending surge cheap mortgages were also available for veterans which led to a housing boom that filled the that fueled the expansion there was a return to profit making activities which raised the demand of labor so employment was very strong Exports were strong because the U.S. government, via the Marshall and Dodge plans, helped build the market of U.S. goods abroad to be strong. Also, the U.S. private sector went global and invested abroad in 1945 through 1970s. The environment was great for business, profits, and stocks because American corporations were extremely profitable after the war. At the same time, the stocks were very cheap in relation to bonds. Stock earnings and dividend yields were a lot higher than bond yields. Stocks were cheap because those who went through the Depression and war years were very risk-averse, so they significantly preferred a safe income stream to a risky one. This set of conditions made a multi-decade prosperity and bull market in stocks that reinforced New York's dominance as the world's financial center, bringing it more investment, and further strengthening the dollar as a reserve currency. This peace and prosperity also provided the funds to improve education, invest fabulous in technology, fabulously in technology, i.e. go to the moon, and do a lot more. In other words, post-war United States was in one of those great mutually and self-reinforcing re- reinforcing big cycle upswings. It was popularly believed in the 1960s that economics was a science so we could expect economic prosperity and stock market always went up with wiggles around the uptrend so one should make dollar cost average purchases i.e buying consistently so that one would buy on the dips as well as the highs because of the confidence psychology which was the opposite of the conservative psychology that existed in the 1950s the stock market hit its high in 1966 which marked the end of the good times for 16 years until 1982 stock market boom. Though nobody knew it at the time because the mood was one of great optimism and decline from the market top looked like one of those dips that one should buy into. It was during 1960s that my own direct contact with events began. I started investing in 1961 at age 12. Of course, I didn't know what 
I was doing at the time and had no appreciation for how lucky my contemporaries and I were. I was born at the right time, just after the war, at the beginning of the post-war big cycle upswing brought about by the early upswings in the long-term debt cycle and dominant world power with, that produced decades of peace, prosperity, and bull markets. In the right place, in the United States, which was the most prosperous and powerful country in the world. And then, I was also very lucky to be raised by parents who loved me and cared for me in an era of the American dream of equality. Opportunity allowed me to get a good public school education and come out into a job market that gave me equal and excellent opportunity at an exciting time of idealism and dreaming big that inspired me. I vividly remember John Kennedy's charismatic leader who inspired the nation to journey to the moon and fight to eliminate poverty and assure civil rights. One could dream big, work hard, and make those dreams happen. And successful people were role models then. In the 1960s, it was great to be middle class. The United States was the leading manufacturing country, so labor was valuable. Most adults could get a good job, and their kids could get a college education and rise without limitation. Since the majority of people were middle class, the majority of people were happy. Throughout the prosperous 1960s, the U.S. did the classic thing that helped the world to become more dollarized. For example, U.S. banks rapidly increased their operations and lending in foreign markets. In 1965, only 13 U.S. banks had foreign branches. By 1970, 79 banks had them. By 1980, nearly every, US, every major U.S. bank had at least one foreign branch, and the total number of branches had grown to 787. Global lending of dollars by American banks boomed. However, as is typical, A, those that prospered overdid things by operating financially imprudently, while B, global competition, especially from Germany and Japan, increased. As a result, the lending and the finances of Americans began to deteriorate at the same time as its trade surpluses disappeared. The late 1960s weakening fundamentals that led to the end of the Bretton Woods monetary system. As explained in Chapter 2, when claims on hard money, meaning notes or paper, are introduced, at first there is the same number of claims on the hard money as there is hard money in the bank. However, the holders of, those, of the paper claims and the banks soon discover the wonders of credit and debt. They can lend these paper claims to the banks in exchange for an interest payment so they get interest. The banks that borrow it from them like it because they lend the money to others who pay a higher interest rate so the banks make a profit. Those who borrow the money from the bank like it because it gives them buying power that they didn't have, and the whole society likes it because asset prices and production rises. After 1945, foreign central banks had the option of holding interest rate paying debt or holding non-interest rate earning gold. Because dollar-denominated debt was considered as good as gold, convertible into gold, and higher earning because it provided interest, which gold didn't provide, central banks shrank their gold holdings, their gold holdings relative to the dollar-denominated debt holding from 1945 until 1971. As explained in the appendix of Chapter 2, The Changing Value of Money, investors making such a move is a classic behavior and ends when A, the claims on the real money, meaning the gold, substantially exceed the amount of real money in the bank, and B, one can see that the amount of real money in the bank, or the reserves, is going down. 
That is when no interest rate can be high enough for it to make sense to hold the debt. That means the claims on the real money, rather than to turn one's paper money in for gold. At that time, a run on the bank occurs and a default and debt restructuring have to happen. That is what led to the breakdown of the gold-linked Bretton Woods monetary system. While following summary repeats some of what was said in prior chapters, it is appropriate to recall here. As is typical of this peaceful and prosperous part of the cycle, in 1950 to 1970 period, there was, there was productive debt growth and equity market developments that were essential for financial innovation and development early on and became overdone later. In the 1960s, Americans spent a lot on consumption and Germ- uh, a lot on consumption, and Germany and Japan, which had largely recovered from the war, were increasingly effective competitors in producing manufactured goods such as cars, so the U.S. trade balances were worsening. At the same time, the U.S. government was spending increasing amounts on fighting the Vietnam War, war and, domis- and domestic social programs called guns and butter. To finance all this spending, the U.S. Federal Reserve allowed the creation of a lot more claims on gold that could actually be converted into gold at a set price of $35 at a set at the set $35 price. As paper money was turned in for the hard money, gold, the quantity of gold in the U.S. Central Bank went down at the same time as the claims on it continued to rise. As a result, the Bretton Woods monetary system broke down on August 15, 1971, when President Nixon, like President Franklin Roosevelt on March 5, 1933, broke the U.S.'s pledge to allow holders of paper dollars to turn them in for gold. As shown in the below charts, the U.S. was spending more than it was earning, and the paper money claims on gold were turned in for gold. The U.S. gold reserves went down until the U.S. government realized that they would run out and stopped allowing the conversion, at which time the dollar plunged in value relative to gold, and the two leading alternative currencies, which were the German Deutschmark and the Japanese yen. So, there's two graphs here. One um, pretty clearly shows that the value of U.S. gold reserve or the the amount of U.S. gold reserves went down um, starting at 1957 and went really down to like 9775, in which case it flattens out in a very distinct line. And then you have the gold price versus the uh, the the denominations of U.S. and uh, Deutschmark currencies, and you see that the gold price shoots up at the end. The U.S. dollar price um, is also loses comparatively, um, right at 1975. Okay, on with the article. As I recounted in Chapter 2, I remember the devaluation of the dollar very well. I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange at the time. I was watching on TV as President Nixon told the world that the dollar would no longer be tied to gold. I thought, oh my God, the monetary system as we know it is ending. And it was. The next day was Monday. When I got to work, I expected there to be a pandemonium and stocks falling. There was pandemonium, all right, but stocks were rising because I had never seen a devaluation before. I didn't understand how they worked. Then I looked into the history and found that the evening of March 5th, 1933, also a Sunday, President Franklin Roosevelt had given essentially the same speech, doing essentially the same thing, which yielded essentially the same result over the following months. A devaluation a big stock market rally, and big gains in gold price. As I looked further, I saw that it had happened many times before in many countries for the same reason. 
too much debt that needed money to ease the debt burden. With essentially the same proclamations by the top government officials, more recent cases with essentially the same proclamations by top government officials. More recent cases that you might remember include the Fed announcing quantitative easing, or QE, on November 25, 2008, which followed Congress approving Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson's request for federal governments to provide $700 billion for asset purchases. Mario Draht in July 2012 uh, stating that the ECB would do whatever it takes, which was followed by massive printing of money and buying of government debt. In March 15, 2020, the President Trump and l- leaders of both houses of Congress agreed on an over $2 trillion stimulus plan. The Fed Chair Powell announced big interest rate cuts at to 0%, a $700 billion quantitative easing plan, and a slew of other supports, with both announcements followed by other big increases in these numbers. The Inflationary tr- and Troubled 1970s After the 1971 delinking of the dollar and other currencies from gold, the world moved to an unanchored fiat, type 3, monetary system, and the dollar fell in value against the gold and other currencies, stocks, and eventually just about everything. The new monetary system was negotiated by the leading economic policymakers of the United States, Germany, and Japan. If you want to read a great description of the process of figuring out how to go from an old monetary system to a new fiat one, I recommend Changing Fortunes by Paul Volcker and Toyo Yoten. Volcker was the leading American policymaker to determine how the new post Bretton Woods monetary system would work. He was also he was the person who knew more about monetary systems and was more at the center of the U.S. dollar system from before 1971 monetary breakdown. He was the Undersecretary of International Monetary Affairs under Nixon, and Nixon served to sever the link with gold through the 1970s inflation that resulted from its breakdown. He was eventually called on to break the back of inflation as the head of the Federal Reserve from 1979 to 1987. He did more to shape and guide the dollar-based monetary system before, during, and after these years than any other person. I was lucky enough to have gotten to know him well, so I can personally assess to the fact that he was a person of great character, capabilities, influence, and humility, a classic hero role model in a world that lacks hero role models, especially in economic public service. I believe that he and his thinking deserve to be studied more. As a result of going off the gold-linked monetary system that constrained that constrained monetary and credit growth, there was a massive acceleration of mon- money and credit, inflation, oil and commodity prices, and a panic out of bonds and other debt assets that drove interest rates up and caused a run into hard assets like real estate, gold, and collectibles for most of the next 10 years, from 1971 to 1981. I remember inflation psychology very well. It led Americans to borrow money and immediately take their paychecks to buy things to get ahead of inflation. The panic out of the dollar debt also led interest rates to rise and drove the gold price from $35 that it was fixed in 1944 and officially stayed at until 1971 to a then peak of $830 in 1980. Yeah, currently it's $1,940. That's in 2020. Okay, I remember inflation becoming the biggest political problem, which led President Nixon to create controls on prices and wages, which created great economic distortions that, along with the Vietnam and Watergate, brought him down. The President Ford passed 
around buttons that said WIN, which stood for Whip Inflation Now. I remember President Carter facing even worse inflation problems, and he brought Volcker back as the head of the Fed to break the back of inflation. Volcker was effective, but it cost Carter his presidency. I saw up close how the loose money and credit policies of the 1970s led to dollar-denominated debt being liberally lent by banks to borrow around the world, especially to those in fast-growing commodity-producing emerging countries. And I saw how the world was in the bubble phase of the debt cycle in the late 1970s. I saw how the panic out of dollars and dollar debt assets and into inflation hedged asset as well as the rapid borrowing of dollars risked lending dollars and dollar debt to seize being an acceptable storehold of wealth. While most people didn't understand how the money and credit dynamic worked, they felt the pain of it and from the high inflation and high interest rates, so it was a chronic political issue. At the same time, in the 1970s, there was a lot of pain conflict and rebellion due to the war in Vietnam, oil embargoes that led to high gas prices and high rationing, labor union fights with companies over wages and benefits, the Watergate and Nixon impeachment, etc. At the time, it was also widely believed that the labor unions were out of control with their demands for more pay and less work and needed to be controlled, so liberalism was losing popularity and conservatism was gaining popularity. These problems peaked in the late 1970s as inflation spiked and 52 Americans were held hostage for 440 days at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran. Americans felt the country was falling apart and lacked strong leadership. At the same time, economic conditions in communist countries were even worse. In China, Mao Zedong's death in 1976 led Deng Xiaoping to come to power in 1978, which led to a shift in economic policies that included capitalist elements like private ownership of businesses, the development of debt and equities markets, entrepreneurial technologies and commercial innovations, and even the flourishing of billionaire capitalists, all under the strict control of the Communist Party. The shift in Chinese leadership and approach, while seemingly insignificant at the time, was going to germinate into the biggest single force to shape the 21st century. The 1979-82 to 82 moved to tight money and conservatism. President Carter, who like most political le- leaders, didn't understand the mon- monetary mechanics very well, knew that something had to be done to stop inflation and appointed a strong monetary policy maker, Paul Volcker, as the head of the Federal Reserve in 1979. In October of 1979, Volcker announced that he would constrain money growth at 5.5%. I ran the numbers, which led me to figure that if he really did that, what he said he was going to do, there would be a great shortage of money that would send interest rates through the roof and would bankrupt debtors who could not get credit they needed and would drive up the debt service expenses to levels that they couldn't afford to pay. While it was unimaginable that he would do that, Volcker struck to the plan despite great political backlash and drove interest rates to the highest level since Jesus Christ, according to the German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt. In 1980 presidential election, Jimmy Carter, who was perceived as a nice but weak liberal Democrat, was voted out, and Ronald Reagan, who was perceived as a homebody conservative whom Americans expected would be stronger and impose discipline that were needed, was elected. Leading countries at the time reflected in the G7, reflected in the G7 that consisted of the U.S., U.K., 
Germany, Japan, France, Italy, and Canada, which reflected how different the world power balance was 40 years ago versus today, made analogous moves in electing conservatives to bring discipline to their inflationary chaos. On January 20th, 1981, the same day Reagan was inaugurated as president, the Iranians released the hostages. Earlier in their terms, both Reagan and the U.S. and Margaret Thatcher in the U.K. had landmark fights with labor unions. Economics and politics have swings between the left and the right in varying extremes as the excesses of each become intolerable and the memories of the problems of the others fade. It's like fashion, the width of ties and the length of skirts. When there is a great popularity of one extreme, one should expect that it won't be long before there will be a comparable move in the opposite direction. The move to monetary tightness broke the backs of debtors and curtailed borrowing, which drove the world economy into its worst downturn since the Great Depression. In seeking the stock market, in, in seeing the stock market, the economy, and the prices of inflation hedged assets plunging, the Federal Reserve slowly started to cut interest rates, but the markets continued to decline. Then Mexico defaulted on its debt in August of 1982. Interestingly, on the day that Mexico defaulted on its debt, August 23, 1982, the U.S. stock market rallied, which was a straw in the wind that I had missed. What happened next created another jarringly painful learning experience for me. While I was able to anticipate debt crisis, which was, which was profitable for me, it, was also, it also led me to realize that banks that had lent that money wouldn't get paid, which led me, A, to anticipate a debt default-triggered depression that never came, and B, to lose a lot of money betting on it, and C, to be very publicly wrong. As a result of my personal losses and losses of my clients, I had to let everyone in my fledgling Bridgewater Associates go and was so broke, I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to pay for my family's bills. At the same time, this painful experience was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I changed my whole approach to decision making. It gave me the fear of being wrong and the humility I needed to balance with my audacity without killing my audacity. It led me to make Bridgewater as an idea meritocracy in which I brought in the smartest independent thinkers I could find to argue with me, which resulted in our doing great over the next 40 plus years. I still carry that fear of being wrong, which is why I am doing this research, why I want to the greatest thinkers in the world to challenge my thinking and to stress test it, and why I am passing this research to you for you to take it or leave as you see fit. Okay, so why was I wrong in 1982, and what went did I learn that would be an important principle for the future? What I had missed and learned from this experience was that when debts are in the currencies that central banks have the ability to print and restructure, debt crises can be well managed so that they are not systemically threatening. Because the Federal Reserve could provide the banks that made the loans, that weren't used be, being paid back with money, they didn't have a cash flow problem. And because the American accounting system didn't require the banks to account for these bad debts as losses, there was no big problem that couldn't be worked out. I also learned that the value of assets in the reciprocal of the value of the money and credit, for example, the cheaper money and credit are, the more expensive asset prices are. Reciprocal value. And the value of money is the reciprocal of the quantity of it in existence. So when central banks are producing a lot of money and credit, 
and making it cheaper, it is wise to be more aggressive in owning assets. The disinflationary and booming 1980s. In the 1980s, there was a stock market and economic boom that was accompanied by falling inflation and falling interest rates in the United States at the same time as there were inflationary depressions in the debt burden emerging economies that didn't have a central bank to bail them out. The debt restructuring process progressed slowly from 1982 to 1989 when an agreement called the Brady Bond Agreement, named after Nicholas Brady, who was the U.S. Treasury Secretary at the time, was created and started to bring to an end the lost decade in these countries, as agreements were reached with different countries through the early 90s. This whole 1971 to 91 up and down debt cycle, which profoundly affected just about everyone in the world, was the result of the U.S. going off the gold standard, the inflation that resulted from it, and having to break the back of the inflation through tight money policies that led to the strength of the dollar and the dramatic fall of inflation. In the markets that the big cycle showed up via, in the markets that big cycle showed up via A, soaring inflation rates and inflation hedged assets and bear markets and bonds in the 70s, and B, the 1979 to 81 bone crushing monetary tightening that made cash the best investment and led to a lot of deflationary debt restructuring and non-American debtors, and C, a falling inflation rate in the 1980s, excellent performance of bonds, stocks, and other deflationary assets. The charts below convey it very well, as they show the swings up and down in dollar-denominated inflation rates and interest rates from 1945 to present. One needs to keep these moves and the mechanics behind them in mind when thinking about the future. And here we just have from 1945 to a graph, and so it starts at 1945 and it ends at maybe 2020, and we just show the U.S. rates, long rates and U.S. short rates going up equally, peaking around 1977 and then coming back down to zero. So then we have core inflation and headline inflation, these lines basically track each other. It starts at 1945, it jumps up, and then it goes down, goes back up in the 70s, and then we'll go back down. So core inflation and headline inflation are seem to be down at this time in 2020. So through it all, the dollar remained the world's leading reserve currency. The entire period was a forceful demonstration of the benefits to the U.S. of having the world's reserve currency the, and that most of the world's debts and money were denominated in. So the 1990 to 2008, so he calls this period, globalizing, digitalizing, and booming financed by debt. Geopolitically, because of its economic failures, the Soviet Union could not afford to support A, its empire, B, its economy, or C, its military, at the same time in the face of U.S. President Ronald Reagan's arms race spending. As a result, the Soviet Union broke down in 1991 and abandoned communism. It was apparent that communism failed or was failing everywhere, so many countries moved away from it. The breakdown of the Soviet Union's money, credit, economic systems, and its large foreign debts were disastrous for the Soviet Union economically and geopolitically through most of the 1990s. That is a whole other interesting story that we won't get into now. In any case, it is notable that in 1980 to 1995 period, most communist countries abandoned classic communism and the world entered a very prosperous period of globalization and free market capitalism. Since the early 1990s, there have been three economic cycles that brought us to where we are now. 
one that peaked in 2000 dot com bubble that led to the recession that followed, one that peaked in 2007 bubble that led to the 2008 global financial crisis, and one that peaked in 2000 in 2019 just before the 2020 coronavirus triggered downturn. During the 1990-2000 period, we also saw the decline of the Soviet Union and the rise of China, globalization, and advances in technologies that replaced people, which was good for corporate profits and widened the wealth and opportunity gaps. Notable markets that reflected these developments were making the internet, the World Wide Web, available to the public on August 6, 1991, which kicked off the dot-com tech bubble and the creation of the World Trade Organization on January 1st, 1995, to facilitate globalization. Technology development and globalization that replaced American workers' jobs, especially those in the manufacturing sector, flourished from 1990s until around Donald Trump's election in 2016. In that roughly 30-year period, countries and country borders faded in importance. The items and the incomes they produced were generally made wherever they could be most cost-effectively produced which led to production and development in emerging countries, accelerating mobility of people between countries, narrowing wealth gaps between countries, and ballooning wealth gaps within them. Lower-income workers in developed countries suffered, while higher-income workers in productive emerging countries made fortunes. Though a bit of oversimplification, it's accurate to say that this was a period in which workers in other countries, especially those in China, and machines replaced middle-class workers in the United States. The chart below shows the balances of goods and services from the United States and China since 1990 in real inflation-adjusted dollars. As you will see when we look at China in the next section of this book, China's economic reform and open-door policies after Deng Xiaoping came to power in 1978 and the welcoming of China into the World Trade Organization in, 20, in 2001 led to an explosion of Chinese competitiveness and exports. Note the acceleration in China's surplus and the U.S. deficits from around 2000 to 2010, and then some narrowing of these differences, and with China still trending to run surpluses and U.S. still running deficits. So yeah, like right around 2010, we see this big jump um, where, yeah, the U.S. and China just have this, yeah, exports of goods and services minus imports of goods and services. And so in 2010, it sort of reverts and comes back and, yeah, kind of moves on. It seems like if China gets richer, the United States um, goes through a short period and then gets richer later. Uh, during the period, during this period of debt and non-debt liabilities, like pensions and healthcare liabilities, grew a lot in the U.S. and debts were used to finance speculation lending up to the dot-com bubble of 2000 and the mortgage bubble of the mid-2000s. That led to bursts that were stim st stimulated out by the creation of more money and debt. These debt cycles were are both undesirable and understandable because there is a tendency to favor immediate gratification over long-term financial safety, particularly by politicians. Most people pay attention to what they get and not where the money comes from to pay for it. So there are strong motivations for elected officials to spend a lot of borrowed money and make a lot of promises to give voters what they want and to take on debt and non-debt liabilities that cause problems down the road. That was certainly the case in 1990 to 2008 period. 
Throughout the long-term debt cycle from 1945 to 2008, whenever the Federal Reserve wanted the economy to pick up, it would lower interest rates and make money and credit more available, which would increase the stock and bond prices and increase demand. That was how it was done until 2008. Uh, for example, the interest rates were cut, the debts were increased faster than incomes to create an unsustainable bubble, uh, bubble economy that peaked in 2007. When in 2008 the bubble burst, the interest rates hit 0% for the first time since the Great Depression. That, ch that, that chart ch changed. As explained more comprehensively in my book, Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises, there are three types of monetary policy. One, interest rate-driven monetary policy, which I call monetary policy one because it is the first to be used and is the preferable way to run monetary policy. So that's like the Fed raising interest rates. Two, printing money and buying financial assets, most importantly bonds, which I call monetary policy two and is now popularly called quantitative easing. So that's when the Fed just buys this quantitative easing just injects uh, digital money into the economy. Three, coordination between fiscal policy and monetary policy in which central government does a lot of debt-financed spending and central banks buy that debt, which I call monetary policy three because it is the third and last approach to be used when the first two ceases to be effective in doing what it needs to be done. The chart below shows how debt crisis from 1933 and 2008 both led to interest rates hitting 0% and were followed by big money printing by the Federal Reserve. So yeah, here they've got, there's a, a great graph, uh, private sector, non-financial debt, and it shows two kind of peaks uh, when the cycle changed and the new world order. Okay, and the interest rates, with each time the interest rates dropped to nearly zero, and the monetary base began to just explode and go up. But each time it seems to have only gone up to around a peaks at 6%, 4%, and 8%, and then it goes back down. And so the monetary base seems to have a capacity to cycle back. But we're noticing 2020, we have the highest amount of monetary base, and uh, we have zero interest rates. So we're at a pretty unexpected time right now. Okay, the shift had big effects and implications. The 2008-20 to 20 monetary financed capitalist boom period. In 2008, the debt crisis led to interest rates being lowered until they hit 0%, which led to three main reserve currency countries, central banks, led by the Fed, to move from an interest rate-driven monetary policy, uh, so that's the MP1, to a printing off money and buying financial asset-driven monetary policy for MP2. Central banks printed money and bought financial assets, which put money in the hands of investors who bought other financial assets, which caused financial assets prices to rise, which was helpful for the economy and particularly beneficial to those who were rich enough to own financial assets. So it increased the wealth gap. The putting of a lot of money into financial system and driving down of bond yields provided companies with a lot of cheap funding that they used to buy back their own stock and stocks of relative, related companies that they wanted to acquire, which further bid up the stock prices. Basically, borrowed money was essentially free, so investment borrowers and corporate borrowers took advantage of this to get it and use it to make purchases that drove stock prices and corporate profits up. This money did not trickle down proportionately, so the wealth of the income gaps continued to grow. As shown in charts below, the wealth and income gaps are now the largest since the 1930 to 45 period. So we're in 
wealth gap equivalent to World War II times. And it shows that, and yeah, it's just showing that they're very similar between 2020 and 1930. In 2016, appealing to those white, socially, and economically conservative voters who were hurt by these trends, Donald Trump, a blunt-speaking business capitalist populist of the right, led a revolt against established establishment politicians and elites to get elected president by promising to support people with conservative values who had lost jobs and were struggling. He went on to cut corporate taxes and run big budget deficits that the Fed accommodated. This was a good for stocks, capital markets, businesses, and the capitalists who own them. While the debt growth financed relatively strong market ec- economy growth and created some improvements for the lower income earners, it was accompanied by a farther widening by further widening the wealth gap and values gap, leading to have-nots to become increasingly resentful of the haves. At the same time, the political gap grew increasingly extreme with intransigent capitalist Republicans on one side and intransigent socialist Democrats on the other. This is reflected in how to, in the two charts below. The first one shows how conservative Republicans in the Senate and House via the dashed and solid red lines and how liberal Democrats in the Senate and House via the dashed and solid blue lines have become relatively have have become relative relative to the past. Based on the measures, they have become more extreme, and their divergent has become larger than ever before. Well, I'm not sure that's exactly right. I think it's by and large right. So here we have a graph, ideological positions of the major parties, and it starts in 1990 and ends in, 19, or in 2030, so the lines don't go completely to the end of the page. We've got House Republicans with a red line, a red solid line, Senate Republicans with a dashed red line. And then the House Democrats with a solid, and then Senate Democrats with a dotted line. So the Senate's dotted line, and it just kind of shows the less conservative, more conservative. Um, the Republicans used to be more conservative consistently, and they all, in around 1940, it seems like everybody converged, and the less conservative and the more conservative, everybody was middle, apparently, according to this graph, between 1940 to 1950, 1960. In the 1970s, when we start seeing a divergence, and now in 2020, we see the greatest uh, divergence in history. The next chart shows the percentage of votes along party lines as shown approximately 95% of the votes in the House and Senate have been along ideological lines uh, lines as of 2016, the highest level in a, over a century. It continues to be reflected in the reduced willingness to cross party lines to compromise and reach agreements. In other words, the political splits in the country have become deep and intransigent. So yeah, they're just showing that the share of congressional votes cast among party lines is higher than it's ever been, and um, it was we're at levels that were really similar to like 1790 and uh, 1910, so pre World War One. At the same time, the U.S. dominance and relative wealth declines and rivalries are intensifying in the U.S. under Trump. This more populist and nationalist leader has taken a more aggressive negotiating posture concerning economic and geopolitical disagreements, A, with international rivals, particularly China and Iran, and B, with allies such as Europe and Japan regarding trade and paying for military expenditures. The conflicts with China over trade, technology, geopolitics, and capital are the most important and are intensifying. Economic sanctions such as those 
that were used in 1930 to 45 period are being used or put on the table for possible use. Then in March 2020, after the coronavirus pandemic came along, and with it, the isolation it necessitated, incomes, employment, and economic activity plunged. The U.S. central government took on a lot of debt to give people and companies a lot of money, and the Federal Reserve printed a lot of money and bought a lot of debt. So did other central banks. As a reaction of this, the chart below showed the unemployment rates and the central bank balance the sheets of major countries for as far back as data is available. As shown, all of the levels of central bank printing of money and buying of financial assets are near or beyond the previous recorded amounts in the war years. So yeah, here we have a U.S. CB balance sheet. And here we have U.S. unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate is around 15% right now, which is the highest outside of you know pre-World War I times. And then the CB balance, the CB balance, which is the central bank's balance sheet, meaning how much the, the percentage of the economy they have on their sheets has gone up to in rates that we've never seen before. It's like approaching 35%, whereas World War II, uh, in 1940, the central bank balance sheet, while paying for the World War II, was never reached a point of more than 25%. So we're at very un, un, unconventional times. Uh, the same is true with Europe. The same is true with the United Kingdom, though to a lesser extent. Very similar is true to Japan, but Japan's actually at parity with their World War II central bank balance rates. Um, no, no, no. Japan's central bank balance rates are way higher. Their unemployment rate uh, is not as significant as the United States. So as history has shown... And does explain in the appendix to chapter two, the changing value of money. When there is a great increase in money and credit, it drives down the value of money and credit, which drives up the value of other investment assets. Much like Nixon's August 1971 move, which led me to realize that it was the same as Roosevelt's March 1933 move, which was like Volcker's August 1982 move, which was like Ben Bernanke's November 2008 move, which was like Mario Dras's July 2012 move and had become standard operating procedures by central banks that will persist until the approach no longer works. That brings us up to now, the post-1945 story in more charts and table. What follows is a series of charts that show the most important financial and economic shifts over the period that were just discovered. They tell us an interesting story of how things have changed. Before I show you them, I'd like to remind you of what the archetypical archetypical cycle looks like so you can make it in mind you can keep it in mind while reviewing these charts as explained in chapter two the big cycle of money debt crisis and economic activity for all countries like for all individuals companies nonprofit organizations and local governments the basic money equation is reflected in a simple income statement of revenue and expenses and a simple balance sheet of assets and liabilities when one's revenue, more importantly from what one sells, is greater than one's expenditure, there is a positive net income, which leads to one's assets to rise relative to one's liabilities, more importantly their debt, which all else being equal raises one's net savings. When one's income is less than one spends, the reverse happens. 
exports are main are the main revenue source between countries. The, the, to convey this picture of export earnings, the chart below shows the sh- share of global export sales of the United States, Britain, Soviet Union, and China from 1900 until present. It shows which countries were and are the biggest export earners. As you can see, A, U.S. exports soared while British exports plunged in each of the two world wars, which made U.S. rich. B, British exports fell from 30% of the total in 1900 to less than 5% today, which made Britain a lot less rich. While C, after World War II, U.S. exports were relatively steady around 25% and 25% until 2000. Then, D, China... Chinese exports rose from around 5% to 15% now, making China much richer, which is now the largest in the world, and the U.S. exports fell to about 14%, making it a much less strong export income earner. And so there's a chart here that shows that, and it's uh, very interesting. It's got China on the bottom. China just starts finally climbing at 2,000, whereas it's very at the bottom uh, for most of the period of time. And then you see... Yeah, United States exports growing while everyone else's exports are shrinking. But exports are only half the net income picture. It is export earnings minus import spending, i.e. the balance of goods and services, that makes the net income of a country that comes from trading with foreigns, with foreigners. To convey that picture of the U.S., uh, the next chart shows U.S. exports of goods and services minus U.S. imports of goods and services since 1900, as shown the U.S. sold more than it bought until around 1970, and then it started to buy more than it sold. So yeah, this is just an inverse chart that shows the United States kind of going through a cycle of buying more or selling more, whereas now we're kind of at a rate, I guess around 2008 was when we were buying the most and selling the least, and it looks to have gone down to a negative 3% persistent trade balance deficit. So naturally, if one buys more than one sells, one has to finance the difference by some mix of drawing down one's savings and or borrowing. One can think of a country's savings as being its foreign exchange reserves. The United States financed its deficits by running down its reserves and savings and building up a lot of debt that it owed to foreigners. The chart below shows the net international investment position of the United States as a percentage of U.S. GDP. It it conveys that While the U.S. used to hold more foreign assets than foreigners held U.S. assets, that has strongly reversed. That is because the U.S. borrowed a lot from the rest of the world and drew down less. So here we have just a chart that shows uh, U.S. net international investment position as a percentage of the GDP. Um, Maybe 1908, it starts at negative 10%, and then we're positive, uh, reaching a high of near like 25%. And then in 1990, we see that it's just sinking uh, pretty dramatically. And right now it's negative 60%. So our international investment position is low in the United States. The charts below show the debt price, i.e. A, the total debt the United States owes to the rest of the world, and B, the total debt the United States owes to the rest of the world, minus the total debt the rest of the world owes to the United States. As shown, while the U.S. has no significant foreign debt at the beginning of the New World Order, it now has large foreign debts. Fortunately for the U.S., and less fortunately for others, this debt is in U.S. dollars. So yeah, that these charts just show that the debt has increased dramatically, especially since the 80s. As for reserve assets, the charts below show both gold and non-gold reserves for these major powers since 1900, 1990s. 
The first set of charts below, A, the total amount of gold reserves and the volume in gold terms, and the total value of gold reserves as a percentage of the country's imports, and C, the total value of gold reserves as a percent of the size of the economy of the U.S., Britain, Soviet Union, and China. They are meant to convey a picture of how much savings in gold countries had and have A, in total, B, in relation to their needs, and C, in relation to the size of their economies. As shown, the United States had enormous gold reserves, approximately 10 times that of the UK, and, a tri- what, and was tremendously rich by the standards of 1945, which came about by its large net earnings previously shown, and the U.S. spent down the gold reserves in 1971 when it was forced to stop redeeming its paper money for gold. Since the quantity of U.S. gold reserves has remained virtually unchanged and the value of these reserves has changed with changes in market prices, as shown below, the U.K. drew down its gold reserves to very low levels while Russia and China have built up theirs in recent years, though they remain low. So the gold reserves, yeah, there's just charts that show um, relative gold reserves for each country. However, gold reserves are no, not a country's only reserves, especially lately since central banks hold foreign currency debt assets, meaning bonds, as well as gold assets and reserve savings. The size of their total reserves does a better job of conveying their savings. The picture of the changes in, the, is in this measure of relative savings is shown in the charts below. Note that the charts now enor- the cha- note, note in the charts how enormous the U.S. total reserves were in 1945, accounting for about 8.5 years of imports relative to those of other countries. And note how enormously and relative how enormously the relative sizes of these reserves have shifted since then, especially with the rise in total reserves in China. Note that China now has the largest foreign exchange reserves, and the U.S. doesn't have much. As shown above, the U.S. and the U.K. have around 70 days of imports in reserves, while Russia and China that figured it around 700 to 600 days, respectively. The gap in the chart in the war years period was due to an absence of data during that period. As explained in Chapter 1, a classic dynamic is that non-reserve currency countries that want to save naturally want to save in reserve currencies, which results in them lending to the to reserve currency country. That happened with U.S. in dollar-denominated debt. It was especially true in the U.S.-China relationship over the 30 to 40 years when China produced goods inexpensively and sold the goods to eager American buyers who wanted to pay for them with borrowed money that the Chinese lent them from their export earnings because the Chinese wanted to save in dollars. As a result of that, the Chinese are now holding 1.1 trillion of U.S. debt, which is about a third of their total reserves, though less than 5% of U.S. debt. Japan holds about 1.2 to 1.3 trillion of it. Because these debts are denominated in U.S. dollars, the U.S. won't have a problem paying them back because the U.S. Federal Reserve can print money and pay them off with depreciated dollars. At this time, China has the world's largest reserves. The United States, while not having large reserves, has the power to print the world's reserve currency. The ability to print money and have it accepted by the world, which is an ability that only a major world reserve currency country, especially the United States, has, is the most valuable economic power a country can have. At the same time, a country that doesn't 
that does not have sizable reserves, which is the position the U.S. is in, is highly vulnerable to not having enough world money. That means that the U.S. is now very powerful because it can print the world's money, and it would be very vulnerable if it lost its reserve currency status. What types of money and credit have been and now are most important? The chart below shows the percentage of reserve assets that held in all countries' reserves combined. As shown, gold's share of total reserves has fallen from 65% to 1945 to about 10% today. Though devaluation of the dollar and the surge in gold's price led gold's share of central bank reserves to be the largest until the early 1990s, after which its share of the world reserve declined to 10%. The U.S. dollar accounts for over 50% of reserves held and has unwaveringly remained the primary reserve currency since 1945, especially after it replaced gold as the most held reserve asset after there was a move to a fiat monetary policy. European currencies have remained steady at 20 to 25% since the late 1970s, and the yen sterling are around 5% of the Chinese renminbi is only 2% which is far below the share of the world trade and world economic size, for reasons we will delve into in the Chinese section of this book, as has been the case with the Dutch guilder and the British pound, the status of the U.S. dollar has significantly lagged and is significantly greater than other measures of its power. That means if the U.S. dollar were to lose its reserve status and significantly depreciate in value, it would have a devastating effect on the finances of those countries holding those reserves, as well as private sector holders of dollar debt assets. Who would be the winner? Those with dollar debt liabilities and those with non-dollar assets would be the big winners. In the concluding chapter, the future, we will explore what such a shift might look like. The next chart shows the share of world production for the U.S., U.K., Russia, and China. It is shown on a purchasing power parity basis, which means that after being adjusted for the differences in prices of the same items in the different countries. For example, if an item in one country was twice the price of the same item in a different country, it would be counted as twice as much productive, even though it's the same thing if counted on a non-purchasing power adjusted basis and it would be counted as the same amount of production if counted on a purchasing power basis as shown in the united states produced as shown the united states produced many times as much as the major other countries produced in 1945 and though its share declined it remained much higher than any other country until recently when it when it was surpassed by china in non-purchasing power parity terms china's output is about 70% of the us output growing at a significant faster rate. Let's not split hairs over the small differences in imprecise measures. The most important headline is that the United States was the dominant economic producer in 1945 and didn't have a comparably sized economic competitor until any time in the last hundred years, up until recently, and now it does in China, which is of formidable size. China is also growing significantly faster, so if this con continues, it will soon be as dominant an economic power as the United States was in 1945. And it just shows an uh, estimated share of global GDP, and the United States has dropped um, just since 2008 or whatever, really close to 2008. No, no, probably more like 2012 or something. And uh, now China has a uh, greater share of the global economy.
where the U.S. is in the big cycle. And so here he says, I think we know roughly where it is. As previously explained, the big cycle of rising and declining empires and their reserve currencies is a cycle that begins with a new world order that comes after a war in which A, there is an environment of peace, prosperity, and productivity in which debt growth is allocated well and sustainably, i.e. most debts are used productively to produce incomes that are greater than the debt service, so most debts are paid back, equities do well, the society gets rich and uh, gets rich with individuals benefiting from the prosperity, though they benefit disproportionately, which eventually leads to B, excess debt growth to finance speculation over consumption, which results in incomes being inadequate to service the debt, which leads to C, central banks lowering interest rates and providing more credit, which produces greater wealth gaps and more over indebtedness, until D, Overindebtedness becomes so large and central banks lose their ability to create credit growth and produce self-funding debt growth, i.e. in which the debts don't accelerate relative to incomes needed to service them without the central bank subsidies. Think about student loans, that is. E. Produces severe economic downturns which with large wealth gaps that tend to internal conflict and leads to lots of printing of money, big debt restructuring, and big wealth distributions via tax changes. That create financial, economic, and political vulnerabilities for the leading power relative to emerging powers that lead to wars and define the winners and losers and produce the new world order. The stats seem to suggest that the U.S. is roughly 75% through that cycle, plus or minus 10%. Is it reversible? Most world powers that experience this cycle have their time in the sun, which is brought about by uniqueness of the circumstances and the nature of the character and culture. Uh, For example, they have to have essential elements to work hard, be smart, be disciplined, become educated, and have their decline phase continue though them through, through them slipping into relative obscurity. Some do this decline traumatically, and some do it gracefully. From studying history, we can see that reversing a declining power is very difficult because that requires undoing a lot that has already been done. For example, bringing one's finances to a point that one's spending is greater than one's earning and one's assets are greater than one's liabilities can only be reversed by either working harder or consuming less which is not easily done. Still, this cycle needn't transpire this way if those in, the, in, the, in, their, if those in their rich and powerful stages stay productive and safe by continuing to work hard and smart, earn more than they spend, save a lot, and make the system work well for most of the population. A number of empires and dynasties have sustained themselves for hundreds of years, and the United States at 200 and 44 years old, has proven itself to be one of the most durable now in existence. I think the most important question is how we adapt and change by asking ourselves and honestly answering some difficult question. For example, while the capitalist profit-making system allocates resources relatively efficiently, we now need to ask ourselves who is it optimizing these efficiencies for, and what should be done if the benefits are not broad-based. Will we modify capitalism so that it both increases the size of the pie by increasing productivity and divides it well? These questions are especially important to answer in an era where when the greatest efficiencies can be gained by technologies replacing people so employing people will 
increasingly become unprofitable and inefficient, making them uncompetitive. Should we or should we not invest in people to make them productive even when it's uneconomic to do so? What if our intent international competitors choose robots over people so we will be unproductive, uncompetitive if we choose to employ people rather than robots? Is it our democratic capitalist system capable of asking and answering such important questions and then doing something to handle them well? So many more important questions come into mind. When we think about the future, which we will do in the concluding chapter of this book, we will have to wrestle with, the, with these questions and many other difficult ones. So yeah, this was just me reading um, this article by Ray Dalio, um, The Big Cycle of Debt in the United States and the Dollar. I found it on LinkedIn. You can visit the uh, webpage to see more information on this. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed this.